Hey, everyone, we'll start in uh Couple more minutes and we will be. All right. Uh, thank you guys. Thank you everyone for joining. This is Single Minded Conversations, my call-in show. This is the uh, second day I've arrived at it on a weekend morning, like before the West Coast is even mostly up. It is. Uh, it's smaller crowds, but it's nice. It's a more uh, intimate gathering. Uh, I'm gonna be going back to sort of more prime timey stuff for a couple upcoming rooms um, tomorrow, Monday, December sixth at five p.m. Eastern. I'll be talking to Alice Gribben about her essay, "The Empathy Racket." Uh, then down the road on December 14th at 6 p.m. Eastern, I'll be talking to Batya Ungar-Sargon about her book, which is mostly about how journalism became a field for rich kids and why that matters, why it's bad. Today, we are going to talk about uh, youth gender dysphoria, specifically the question of how clinicians, psychologists, psychiatrists, endocrinologists, and so on should help adolescents who think they might want to physically transition. Um for those who are familiar with me that you might know, this is an issue that sort of took over my journalistic life a little bit after um, I wrote a cover story in the Atlantic in 2018 called when children say they're trans. It was 12 or 13,000 words. And it, it looked at this issue from the perspective of parents from happily transitioned kids and adults and from detransitioners who felt they were rushed toward transition and, or that other mental health problems had sort of, I don't know if confused is the right word, but but convinced them in a sort of what turned out to be a fleeting way that they should transition. And, you know, in the worst cases, they'd undergone uh, medical procedures that had uh, permanent effects. So don't want to do that if possible. Um, that article, which which I stand by and I think was pretty balanced and which drew solely from mainstream sources and quoted a lot of clinicians, it, it launched a bigger shitstorm than anything – uh, I've ever written about before, and hopefully anything I'll write about again in the future. Uh, there were a number of very angry responses. I will never forget what's Jesse Single's fucking deal in Jezebel, which is a, a great headline. You have to give them credit. Uh, and my name basically became poison in certain circles. Uh, the, the basic argument was that by calling any attention to detransition or to uh, the potential downsides of transitioning, I was scaring parents and giving fuel to right-wingers. Uh, the most sort of ardent criticisms are that if you make these claims, you're killing kids because kids will kill themselves because they can't transition, which is you know a serious thing to be accused of. Um, three plus years later, I'm I'm doing fine. I'm definitely less canceled, air quotes, than I've ever been. But I do think a lot of people watching the response to that article basically got the memo that you're not supposed to treat this issue with the same rigor or 
journalistic skepticism, you tackle any other medical or scientific debate. But over time, um, some legitimate concerns about these treatments really have picked up, especially in the last couple of years. People have realized there isn't really much evidence and that therefore there's probably a case to be very careful about assessment, about that process of like sitting with a kid and, and talking to them about their gender concerns and making sure they're likely to benefit from puberty blockers and hormones. I should say, I don't think I've ever written anything about just like how kids identify uh, unless medicine is involved. I don't really care about that as much, except in sort of a complicated tangential way, but that's, that's not really what any of this is about. This is solely about when kids should go on puberty blockers and hormones. Here's what I wrote in June of this year in The Spectator. Three major reviews of the literature conducted by government agencies in Finland Sweden and the UK found an alarming lack of data supporting early treatments, youth GD treatments. The last, conducted by the NHS's National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, or NICE, found a grand total of five uncontrolled observational studies suggesting beneficial outcomes for dysphoric youth who go on cross-sex hormones. Uh, goes on to say these were methodologically weak studies, and the authors concluded, quote, any potential benefits of gender-affirming hormones must be weighed against the largely unknown long-term safety profile of these treatments in children and adolescents with gender dysphoria. Because of this gap in the evidence, um, Finland strongly turned against youth gender dysphoria treatment, severely curtailing its use. A British court ruling temporarily curtailed access for kids, but that was overturned. The situation is complicated. The, the, the overturning basically telegraphed that like, if you're a clinician, you need to be careful. You could be legally liable uh, because we don't have much evidence for these treatments. Uh, and then the Karolinska Hospital, uh, which is a leading medical center in Sweden, published a similar policy shift. The policy shift. They basically cited the lack of research and said, we're only going to do this in experimental settings, like carefully controlled experimental settings. Uh, they cited the lack of evidence, but then it turned out that the hospital had covered up some very damning information. Among its own patients, there had been a number of severe side effects among kids on puberty blockers including osteoporosis, suicidality, liver problems, a weird case of a kid who started cross-sex hormones gaining 55 pounds in a year but not getting any taller, and a number of detransitioners. And we've been loudly told by many people that detransition is incredibly rare, so rare that we should barely worry about it. But here were kids in a really high-quality medical setting who detransitioned. Okay, so we're about to get to the main event, but maybe I'll first ask if anyone has any questions on just the stuff I've talked to so far. I want to make sure that I'm like setting the table appropriately and that everything's clear. Uh, I will give 20 seconds for anyone with a comment to hop in the queue. And I think uh, you should just see a button if you want to. It does not look like there are questions so far. Okay, let's um, let's jump to the present. So the... World Professional Association for Transgender Health, or WPATH, is the leading professional association for anyone who works with trans people. They published this so-called standard of care, which is in theory something of a Bible uh, for trans healthcare. In practice, the guidelines are non-binding, and, and the present version of the SOC, which is version 7, is very light on guidance for how to work with kids and adolescents. The entire child and adolescent section is combined into one section. It's like 10 pages they're not particularly dense pages, and there's alarmingly little information about assessment. And like, if you report on this issue, you will come back to that question of assessment over and over and over again because 
there's some clinicians who think assessment is basically unnecessary. Like you don't really need a psychological assessment. Kids, including 12 and 13 year olds know what they need and they should be given medicine. Um, there really are some clinicians who basically think we should be giving 12 and 13 year olds full medical autonomy on the other side of this divide. And, and this is like a pretty narrow part of the full spectrum. Cause these are all folks who, who think kids should go on puberty blockers and hormones or some other side of that spectrum. Uh, are folks who think that assessment is very important, that these treatments are very serious, and that if you don't assess kids, you're going to get bad outcomes. So if you don't like figure out how a kid's autism or their eating disorder ties into their experience of gender, you might ending... Oh, Chris, yeah, let me take one quick question. Hey, Chris. Chris, you're going to want to unmute yourself. Oh, am I on? You oh, are. Hello, first time uh, caller and listener. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's wild too. Like I'm a parent, I have a 12, 12 year old son coming up on 13 and I'm, I'm confused why there's such backlash over wanting to have a conversation with kids. Like you're just talking about, about getting a proper diagnosis and see if anything else is going on. Like my background's in mental health and, you know, I talk a lot about how we just throw ADHD medications at kids you know what I mean? So this seems like something that we should be yeah. researching and discussing because as you mentioned with, you know, kids on the autism spectrum and all that, it's like, is there anything going on in their life before they take some potentially life changing medications? You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so among the, the clinicians on the side of the spectrum who would disagree with you, what they say, the quote that's jumped out at me was, um, from a, a clinician named Joanna Olson Kennedy, who's considered one of the leading gender clinicians in the world. She works at a children's hospital at UCLA. And she basically said like, uh, I wouldn't give someone a mental health examination before putting, giving them insulin for their diabetes. And that quote jumped out at me because my understanding is that diabetes is like a thing you sort of have, or you don't, it's very, there's a physical basis for it. We don't have a physical test for a kid's gender identity, let alone, if the gender identity will be the same in 10 years, let alone whether and to what extent things like mental health concerns are affecting its presentation in that moment. So, I mean, I'm not going to be coy, Chris, I'm obviously with you, but there are a lot of people who think that just assessing kids carefully is harmful. I should also add that in a lot of these clinics, there is so much more demand than supply of doctors and psychologists. And there's been a huge uptick, particularly in natal females of kids seeking these services. So, it's easy for me to sit here on my couch and say they should give everyone a, a full psych exam. In practice, that's often quite challenging. Uh, thank you for the question. Let's let's jump to the present now that I've given a bunch of background on the basic contours of this debate. Um, okay, so WPATH, standards of care. This is supposed to be the Bible for trans healthcare. It's actually non-binding. Say, uh, the version 7 was very light on child and adolescent stuff, but WPATH just published the draft versions of the chapters for the SOC 8, and they're doing a period of public comment. Anyone can send them comments on what they think. I'm not going to pretend to know like a huge amount about the nitty gritty of the process of writing these documents. I have been in touch with some people involved, and um, one person involved said that he, he was a little bit worried that offering public comment could backfire because it has it's such a heavy list to create a consensus document like this that combines the viewpoints of so many experts. So he was almost like, I mean, we're not necessarily going to make changes just because members of the public disagree. So I think there's some, that's sort of a, a fair point and complicated. Um, 
I just want to explain a little bit about what I noticed when I read this for the first time. And then if you have questions, I will take them. Uh, so in September, I reviewed a book by Helen Joyce called Trans for the New York Times. Helen wrote, quote, new standards, new standards of care are being drawn up as I write, but I see no reason to expect any turn back from ideology and towards evidence. This was one of the uh, parts of her book I disagreed with. I mentioned in my review that as far as I knew, there were a lot of people working on the next version of uh, the SOC who actually had a lot of concerns about how kids are being treated, about how some kids are maybe being rushed for permanent medical treatment. Uh, I am often wrong about stuff quite frequently, in fact, but after reading the draft of the adolescent chapter, I do think I was on the right track here. The subcommittee that wrote the adolescent chapter, if these names don't mean anything to you, it's no big deal, but uh, names like Anna Lou DeVries, Scott Leibowitz and Laura Edwards Leeper. These are all folks that I've cited in my reporting and, and they're all staunch advocates for transgender youth, but they all are committed to careful assessment and they, they don't want kids who won't benefit from these treatments put on them. So they're at the sort of other end of the spectrum from someone like Joanna Olson Kennedy or um, maybe more in the middle of someone like Diane Aronsaft. There are a lot of sort of frequently quoted celebrity clinicians in the space or not a lot, but, but a number. Um, so the new draft is about 29 very dense pages long, not including citations. And there's a ton about assessment. It talks about how adolescents are often impulse-driven, about how their brains aren't fully developed. And it talks about how the data we do have on medium-term outcomes for early physical transitioners comes from a Dutch clinic that had a, a very thorough assessment process. So that's crucial because like, if you have data that comes from a clinic that does business one way, that does a lot of talk therapy, a lot of keeping an eye on kids and a lot of assessment, you can't necessarily draw those conclusions to an American clinic that is just frankly crappy and that doesn't do any of that careful work. So I was glad that they pointed that out because people often make really apples to oranges comparisons when they, when they sort of pick and choose from the little bit of data we have on the subject. Um, this the new chapter of of this document even addresses rapid onset gender dysphoria or ROGD. Uh, this is a very controversial subject, but to oversimplify, this is the idea of kids suddenly determining that they are trans or gender dysphoric on the basis of some combination of social or cultural influence or non-specific symptoms. So, you know, the classic example of this would be a teenage girl is very anxious or depressed and she goes online and she learns about gender identity and she interprets her anxiety and depression as a gender identity concern. We have basically no data on this. I think there are so many, I want to be careful how I phrase this. Phrase this. It absolutely happens sometimes. I've talked to kids it's happened to. You can now hear podcasts featuring like 20 somethings talking about how it happened to them. The question of how concerned we should be is like another thing. And also, I hate the idea of parents like deciding their kids have our ROGD and then not taking them to a gender clinic because that's that's bad. You don't know if your kid has ROGD, if your kid is just expressing a genuinely new deep-seated identity to you. Um, but, you know, I, I'm reading this document and they they talk about this pretty – Frankly, here, here's the paragraph question. For a select subgroup of young people in the context of exploration, social influence on gender may be a relevant issue and an important differential. This phenomenon is neither new nor surprising for health professionals working with adolescents. However, caution must be taken to avoid assuming these phenomena prematurely in an individual adolescent, as well as from data sets that may have been ascertained with potential sampling biases. So that's just a very like 
careful, politically deft way of saying that some kids have something like ROGD. WPATH could never say that explicitly because it's such a toxic subject, but it's right there. Uh, I mean, for, for a select subgroup of young people, social influence on gender may be a relevant issue and an important differential. That gives clinicians license right in the standards of care to talk about this stuff, which I think is very important. So I guess overall, I think anyone concerned about quality control in the area of trans youth medicine should be really hardened by this document. Um, I've read a number of similar documents put out by organizations that are clearly activist in bent. They're much more oriented toward broadcasting that the organization has the right political values, that it's on the quote unquote right side of the youth blockers and hormones issue. And uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics was the most disturbing example. You just read this. And there's just no comparison between that document, which really could have been written by an activist taking most of their cues from Tumblr and reading this document, which I just think is very careful and good and thorough. So I, I was heartened by this because it, it could have gone the other way. It could have been that like WPATH is in a difficult and interesting situation where they, they do and should hear from trans activists who absolutely should have an influence based on their own experiences, often not getting the medicine they need. So it's a question of balancing that with the views of, you know, clinicians with 20 years of experience working with teenagers who might be coming at this from a very different place. So um, for what it's worth, I, I just think the document does a good job of that. And I just view it as a, a hardening sign that things are turning around. Um, and I'm curious how media outlets, uh, if I can be egocentric for a minute, especially media outlets that bash me for writing very similar things, I'm curious how they're going to cover this or if they're just going to ignore it. Because it, it, if it gets published in anything like this form, it's like a pretty significant sea change in how WPATH handles these issues. Um, okay, I hope at least a few of you have questions. I can keep talking about this document, but please jump in the queue if you have any questions about anything I have said. There is a question from Daniel. Daniel, how's it going? Daniel, you got to uh, unmute your microphone if possible. Hmm. All right, I will keep talking about Daniel tries to unmute his microphone. The other um, really hardening thing from this document was it's very frank about the fact that kids in the midst, uh, maybe I can, um, no. Nope. All right. Shiran, Shiran, how do you pronounce this? Hey, Shiran, uh, just a quick comment. Um, can, you, yep. can you hear me okay? I can. Yeah, I, I just wanted to say that um, a, a good comparison, is, um, you, you mentioned insulin uh, and whether or not that, that is administered uh, without any psychological assessment. Uh, but I think a better uh, analogy is bariatric surgery. So um, I think it's pretty standardized across um, the entire practice that if you get a tummy tuck or any kind of surgery, you go through extensive psychological evaluation and then you're actually being followed through after the procedure for a while. And that's for adults. And so that's kind of widely accepted. And, you know, here we're talking about kids and trying yeah. to um, uh, 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 avoid that or circumvent that. No, that, that's an interesting point. I don't, I don't know much about bariatric surgery. I mean, the other thing with the insulin comparison, I don't want to harp on it too much because I, I do think she's much more toward the, the assessments are bad side of this. She said things like, we have no evidence, you know, mental health evaluations help, which 
I think it's technically true, but the best data we have do come from a clinic that that does do a lot of mental health evaluations. But um, the other thing is the relevant comparison here would be someone coming to a doctor and saying, I need insulin. And the doctor saying, okay, without doing a full assessment. So I don't think the comparison works, but um, thank you, Sharon. Daniel, did you figure out your mic? Daniel, you got to uh, unmute yourself. I'm going to take Colin's call. Colin, what's up? Hey, Jesse. Um, I just wanted to ask you a question about your view on activists' uh, involvement in the conversation. Um, my personal opinion on activists in, in most matters is that they're useful in order to get a conversation started. Um, but once the conversation gets started, they often sort of uh, muddy the waters for their own ends. Um, do you think at this point in the trans uh, medicine conversation, there actually is uh, uh, there is a seat at the table for activists, or do you think that they have the propensity to do more harm than good in trying to to figure out the the right way to go from from here on out? Oh yeah, I mean, I think they have to have a seat at the table because they're the sort of patient population being that's whose well-being is at is at issue here but but with this and any other issue it's like it's it has to do with that complicated interplay between experts and members of the lay public so um if i go to a neighborhood that has experienced stop and frisk or some degree of over policing in new york which has obviously happened and i talk to people on the streets hearing their experiences of being over policed or being arrested for no reason is obviously important but at a certain point, in terms of what the policy should be or how to measure which neighborhoods are most affected by these bad policies, the average person there is not going to be able to tell me much about that because they're not an expert. So it's sort of similar here. Like a individual trans person can tell us a lot about what it's like to interact with the medical system. A lot of them complain about very long wait lists, which is absolutely a problem, I think, just about everywhere. Um, that stuff's important, but I, that doesn't mean they're experts on some of the more complex debates. And I got in trouble. I, I have emails leaked where I basically said that. I said, we should absolutely listen to trans people. That doesn't mean they're experts on, on some of the, the research literature here because very few people are and very few people have time to be an expert. I'm not an expert, but I'm familiar enough to talk about it. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, I guess my pushback would be that, that it, it makes sense to get the experience of the average trans person, but I don't necessarily view the head of a uh, trans activist organization as somebody who has the experience of the average trans person versus somebody who has a um, an end goal sort of agenda and and is willing to sort of um, bend bend truths or, or bend narratives to get to it is yeah I, I mean i think i think all activist groups do some degree of truth bending just because they're political groups so i'm, I'm with you I, yeah. I, I have not been happy with how organizations obviously organizations like glad and aclu have handled this issue and and this document i think flies in the face of some of the stuff the most prominent people at those organizations has said so it'll be curious to see how they respond yep it's encouraging thanks for taking the call thanks all uh from q all right uh if anyone else has questions jump in the queue the the stuff they in this document about um mental health is really important because there's this I think fairly radical belief you see pop up that if a kid presents with gender concerns and with other serious mental health problems, 
the gender concerns, the um, mental health problems are being caused by the fact they haven't transitioned. People don't really attend to the possibility that causality flows in the other way, that, for example, because of anxiety or depression or more serious stuff, that is causing the gender dysphoria. And this document, like, pretty clearly says that in situations where kids are suffering from a lot of serious mental health issues, they should be stabilized, if possible, before going on any other, um, any major treatments. And it, it also explicitly says that that can cloud the diagnostic picture. If you're dealing with a kid who has autism or depression or anxiety, that can cloud your ability to understand their gender concerns and, and how much um, hormones or puberty blockers or down the road surgery could help them. So I found that, um, I don't know, I found that hardening too. I'm usually not an optimistic guy, but these, these, this is a very good set of documents so far. Uh, here and there, there's there's little nods they do to like sort of activist language that I thought were a little confusing or not useful, but overall, it's really good. All right, Daniel, I'll give you one more chance to unmute yourself. You are you are up, Daniel. Alas, um, so yeah, I. Uh, it's interesting in writing about this, how many parents you will hear from who have concerns. And these are not Trump voting parents. They, people I hear from tend to be liberal. Not, I mean, not that Trump, Trump supporting parents shouldn't have their uh, concerns heard too, but there is this belief that if you, have, if you have any questions about this or any concerns about this area of medicine, you're reactionary. And, and I've experienced that. And I'm worried that that, um, you know, has slowed down research into this and, um, just made it harder to get to the truth. And I think this gets to my broader point that I talked about in an earlier room of like this very sort of defeatist view among some folks who are anti-woke for less, lack of a better word, that like they will literally say like this or that institution has fallen past tense like that. It's fallen. It's done. It cannot do good work anymore. I don't think that's how institutions work. I think there's always push and pull. I think for a big messy organization like WPATH or, or the New York Times for that matter, there's all sorts of conflict within the organization and there's all sorts of disagreement and different factions might win or lose at different points. Um, you know, I don't want to make it sound like a, a sports game because this is more important than that, but I do think within WPATH, there is, there are people who don't like assessment and, and who would not want 14 or 15 year olds to undergo much assessment. And then there are people for whom assessment is very important. And the question of, how this document looks is this boring but important thing of who gets on what committee at what time. That's really what it comes down to. And it's all these matters of internal politics that uh, are sort of um, uh, we're obscured from. We don't, we don't have access to. And it's sort of remarkable how many, how few American journalists like are actually sourced up on this issue. I'm, I'm not really, I don't, it's not like a beat I'm on, but you would think that given how much attention is paid to every iteration of this controversy, every new law seeking to ban youth transition, every new statement uttered by activists that someone would just be covering it as a journalistic beat covering youth gender dysphoria and these clinical debates. Uh, it just doesn't seem to happen. And I, I I'm curious whether, I mean, I know some journalists shy from it uh, specifically because it is so polarizing and toxic and difficult. But I think that's really, um, really unfortunate. Um, the one other thing I wanted to mention here. Uh, I wanted to just make a request that organizations no longer use the term gender diversity because I don't know what it means. So early on in this report, we hear uh 
early until recently, there was limited information regarding the prevalence of gender diversity among adolescents. Studies from high school samples indicate much higher rates than earlier thought, with reports of up to 1.2% identifying as transgender and up to 2.7% or more experiencing some level of self-reported gender diversity. Self-reported gender diversity, I, I just wish we wouldn't put like a clinical label on feeling some sense of like pushing against the gender. Hey, Daniel, you there? Yeah, I finally, finally got it to work. But go ahead, and then I'll ask. I just, I've been struggling to get it to work. So finish your thought. Yeah, sorry, it's a little tricky. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, just I, I think if you look at a lot of polling, that's like, oh, three percent of kids are are gender nonconforming or gender diverse. I, I, I don't think it's helpful to put. I think the vast majority of these kids are not even seeking hormones. It's like literally kids who change their style a little bit and come out as non-binary for a little while, which happens all the time in middle school and high school. And it's fine. It, there's, it's harmless unless they then think they need hormones. But I just don't think we need to put labels on that and measure whether 3 to 7% of American kids or whatever it is like temporarily go through. I think it is often a phase. And I think every parent knows that. Anyway, go ahead, Daniel. So... I'm kind of interested in the fact that there seems to be a, a certain amount of dissent within WPATH. Um, I mean, you just mentioned that, and I think I listened to you on some other podcast where you mentioned that. <clears throat> and I noticed, and I've noticed that, uh, you know, Abigail Schreier uh, published uh, interviews with two practitioners who had, I guess, had dissenting views or believed it, that, that more assent, assessment was necessary. Yeah, this is Marcy, Marcy Bowers, who is a surgeon, and Erica Anderson, who is a psychologist. They're both trans women themselves, and uh, Erica's great. I met her in San Francisco, and I've interviewed her a few times. Uh, but yeah. Yeah, so it just, um, what I wonder about this is if there is this level of dissent, um, it seems to me that that makes it more likely that the dissent is going to spill out into public view. And you were kind of yeah. questioning, you know, how is the media going to cover it? It seems to me that the media is more likely to cover it if there is a dispute and it somehow spills out into the open. And so it, it seems like to me, we're kind of seeing some cracks here. And I'm wondering if, you know, I'm just kind of wondering if, you know, what you think about the likelihood that this will spill out into, that this will spill out into public, um, you know, and, and yeah, uh, I think, I think you're right that it's starting to. So what's interesting is there's just a really important piece published in the Washington Post by Eric Anderson and then Laura Edwards Leeper. Edwards Leeper is another clinician I have a lot of respect for. She sat on the adolescent subcommittee, so she helped write these guidelines they wrote like a pretty urgent um, – the tone of the piece was urgent about how shoddy they think assessment practices are getting. And, you know, they're psychologists. They think the mental health component is important. That piece was was rejected by the New York Times, uh, which has run crazy shit about youth ge- the opinion page, which I like and would like to write for again. They've run really crazy stuff about youth gender dysphoria, and they rejected this piece from two leading clinicians. They said like – I think that the rejection basically said they were moving away from that topic area. Then they go get it published in the post. But, you know, the New York Times book review uh, section assigned me to write a review of Helen Joyce's book. So I think the conversation is opening up. I'm worried that within 
I'm a member of a Facebook group that, that deals with like trans healthcare. And there are these closed communities where there's no debate whatsoever. So when this Washington Post article came out, people immediately started just like trashing Edwards Leeper, Ed, uh, Edwards Leeper and Erica Anderson as just horrible people. There, there's constantly the refrain that if you don't say the right things about this, kids will die. Constantly the specter of kids killing themselves. Um, so it's always been the case since I got controversial for writing about this issue that on Twitter, you would think that there's no debate, but then the vast majority of the emails I get are supportive or in many cases are from parents being like, how can you support puberty blockers at all? So the, I think we're starting to see cracks like you're saying, but I'm just still worried that um, if you're a parent and you just Google around, you could get to some really bad resources that mislead you a great deal. All right, well, one follow-up then uh, in terms of this. I'm really interested in this dynamic of the of the debate breaking open. It seems to me that it really is, um, the trans issue, it seems to me, is breaking open in Great Britain. Um, and so I'm wondering if there, uh, more so than it is in the United States, at least that's my perception. And I'm wondering if you share that perception, and and I'm I'm kind of wondering if that maybe there might be some spillover effect from Great Britain to the United States. Yeah. So basically, what's going on there is uh, a while ago the conservative government tried to uh, move toward instituting self ID, which would basically mean, you know, officially speaking, you just attest that you are this or that sex, and then you are for most for most legal purposes. Um. The situation there is complicated because my understanding is it is a pretty friendly place for trans people. They enjoy a lot of protections written into law. There's also sort of exceptions where biological sex should win out and things like rape shelters. It's like basically what I think a liberal regime should be on this where where there's the proper balances in place. I think a lot of trans people there um, complained about the process of getting a so-called gender recognition certificate being too onerous. And I think it often did take too long. And there's probably a case to be made to shorten it. I'm not sure there was ever a huge demand that we need it to be like that, like an instant process. I think this is one of those sort of top-down activist-driven things that it became this huge blow up because there was huge backlash to the idea of self ID from constituencies, including feminist groups that had not, they had not really been advocating against, you know, general trans inclusion and civil rights for trans people, but it just became this incredible cultural flashpoint and political flashpoint. And eventually the, the government withdrew the proposal. They, they, instead of self ID, they just reduced the cost of getting a gender recognition certificate. But it was very weird uh, in part because you don't need a gender recognition certificate to enjoy a lot of just basic rights as a trans person in the UK. So I think that's an example of what happens when the public is actually um, posed with the sort of, it's, it's sort of like the left-wing equivalent of the, of the conservative state laws trying to ban these treatments altogether. It's just like way beyond, I think maybe where we need to be. Not that those two are equivalent. And I, it was so unpopular and it elicited such backlash that I, I, I don't know. I mean, the Democrats are trying to pass sort of a version of that uh, in the Equality Act. It's just not going to happen because of the filibuster. So we're not going to have that, like, in effect, a national referendum on a law like that. But I, I don't know. I think the backlash there struck me, and I think maybe we're headed in that direction of a more open public discussion here. I rambled a bit, but was that what you were asking? Yeah, that is that is what I'm asking. I, I just 
Well, I would just say, I think this is, I think, um, I mean, I'm really, I've, I've always been really, I mean, I've been a sort of, um, you know, sort of practice media criticism, you know, sort of amateur media criticism for a long time. And I'm really fascinated. I mean, things are very different now than they were 30 or 40 years ago. It was just much, you know, in general, it was much more, you know, if the New York Times and Washington Post didn't report on something, it didn't exist. Now we're in a different media environment, but it just, it's, you know, it just seems to me that whenever there's, whenever there's a conflict or whenever the census breaks down, you know, that's, that's when things spill out to public debate. And maybe that, maybe that's when you get a change. So, you know, we're in, like, as I said, we're in a very different media dynamic than we were, um, you know, during the Cold War before the internet. But I guess that, you know, I, I guess I would just say I, I think that dynamic's very interesting. I'd be kind of interested if, if that was, you know, uh, a, a topic that you might want to cover on your substack. Yeah, no, I, I think it's definitely I do have some writing coming up on there about um, the, this ridiculous case with the Swedish hospital in particular, Carolyn's did, because I just think it's like a crazy scandal that should we should be worried about something similar happening in the States because we have just basically a worse healthcare system. Um, but yeah, well, thank you for the call, Daniel. I appreciate it. Um, so unless there's more questions, I'm just going to sort of wrap up with some closing thoughts. I, I will take one more if there is one. Uh, okay. Mickey, there we go. Mickey, how's it going? Hey, Jesse, how's it going? Good, good. Um, yeah, I just had a quick comment. Just kind of wanted to see what your thoughts were on this. I think one of the biggest problems with this issue is that people frame it in the terms of just like fairness. And it's just like, you know, we just want everything to be fair with everyone, which I think in general is just a great, you know, path for it's like, it's how you get out of segregation and, you know, and and more equality across the board. But we're in this weird, unique situation when it comes to, to sex where fairness sort of is unfortunately a zero sum game, especially higher up the higher up you go in like the sort of consequential ladder of it, where basically just like, unfortunately men are, stronger, faster, and just more dangerous than women. I mean, it, it just, just purely when it comes to the numbers. And I feel yeah. like um, that really, really clouds the issue because in, in so many ways, you know, if you just have two people and you're like, make it fair between them, you know, that's not a controversial thing, but it unfortunately just seems like there's not a, there's not a, there's not like a pretty way to just like, like, uh, grow more fairness on a tree no i i it's such a good point and something i've thought about is there's a real allergy to the idea of trade-offs like it's not it's not fun to talk it's fun to talk about equality because everyone wants equality everyone wants people to be treated approximately the same to oversimplify um trade-offs are not fun to talk about because then you actually need to get to the weeds and say fair for who and i thought it was a very telling moment there was a, a guardian editorial uh just you know, unsigned editorial that was basically talking about how the trans debate in the UK there there were some rights colliding here: the rights of natal females to their own spaces versus the rights of trans women. That led a group of uh, Guardian US journalists to write their own editorial, fiercely 
denouncing their colleagues across the pond for even suggesting there could be trade-offs here. And I think that's silly because there's trade-offs. There's also in this debate, frankly, um, you know, a 13 year old who really wants to go on hormones, there is a trade-off between that kid's present desires and the future version of that kid at 25. Will they be happy with the medical care they got when they were 13, which is not something they can evaluate from their present vantage point. So I think you're right. I think we need to view this in terms of trade-offs and, it's ridiculous to pretend there aren't trade-offs here. Yeah, definitely. And and you're totally right. Unfortunately, it's just people do not want to <laughs> be in that uncomfortable gray area and realize that like maybe there's no sort of perfect, perfect solution. Yeah. Thanks. Exactly. Thank you, Mickey. Um, so yeah, I um yeah, it, hop in the queue if you have any more questions. Otherwise, I'm I'm wrapping it up here. I one thing I really want to do, I have a gender clinician who I have a lot of respect for who might be able to come on here. I would do it, you know, 7 or 8 p.m. Eastern some night rather than a Sunday morning. Although this was this was very good turnout for a Sunday morning, so I appreciate you guys joining. Um, just to talk about her or his view on this issue, and especially to take questions, I, I think obviously they cannot diagnose a kid from a call-in chat, but to take questions on the general nature of their work because there is – so little understanding of what gender clinicians actually do. There's this like fairy tale version of it you see written up where it's like the the psychologist sits with the kid and talks to him for five minutes and realizes this kid is trans. They need to live as the other sex. And it's just like this this um caterpillar to butterfly thing that I think in a few cases happens, but usually the process is a lot more complicated. It should be complicated when medicine is involved. So if that is it, I will wrap it up there. I appreciate you guys joining. Um, if you think these rooms are useful or informative or infuriating, the best thing you can do to help me out uh, is tell people about single-minded conversations and about me and about this platform. I'm starting from scratch, building a new thing. So that that would help tremendously. Uh, but otherwise, thank you so much for joining and for participating in the conversation. And I hope you have a good Sunday. Farewell. <laughs>